are coming up on a time to nominate uh, new deacons, and we will uh, receive those nominations the first Sunday in December, and then we will vet those nominations and vote on new deacons as a body on our first celebration Sunday in the new year of 2020. And so what I wanted to do is just make it not something that's done uh, at a business meeting on a Sunday night when only 20 of you are here, but something that we all as a congregation participate in and think and consider what it means to lead and serve in the household of God. So I'd want to read to you the central texts for the qualifications for elders or overseers and deacons in the New Testament. And this is from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, Faithful in all things, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. And then also Titus. Uh, Paul's letter to Titus, his other protege, uh, chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete so that you may put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery, it's a great Bible word, or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. This is the word of the Lord. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Interestingly enough, this is the 52nd week of our time here at North Star. So it's been 52 weeks, a, a year of teaching, preaching, and all that, and I would say it's been a good and worthy work, and we have deep gratitude towards all of you. Eagerness 
to continue in the work of the ministry. And a forward-looking hope to what God has desired for us to be as His people. And like I said, it's a good work. It has been challenging and it's been hard and we always knew it was going to be, but it's good. And it's eternally rewarding. And so as we look at leadership, I'm kind of also reflecting on my experience in leadership of the household of God. And I want to say to you that part of my reason for preaching three sermons on leadership as we are kind of taking a break from our study of the book of Hebrews is to inspire you to leadership, especially you young people. I want you to consider a few things, and I know it's Sunday morning, but I want to tell you some numbers, just to tell you some of the things we're dealing with, and I hope you'll bear with me a little bit while I discuss a few numbers. The world population, it is estimated, increases by 228,000 people a day. Every day, 228,000 people are added to the population of the earth. So Protestants, that's all Protestants, okay? That's people who call themselves Christians who aren't Catholics. All Protestants make up about 10 to 12% of the world population. So if you just project that out, if we wanted to keep the same percentage, in all churches, the average size of a church is around 200 people. We would need to add... 100 to 200 new churches every single day just to keep up. That's over or about 40,000 churches globally a year. Now, I don't know exactly how many churches are being planted around the world, but I know for certain it is not that many. And that's all Protestants. If we start cutting out the, the different mainline Protestant or evangelical denominations and groups that are not healthy or don't center on the gospel, the, the numbers would be more severe. We need more churches. Everywhere needs more healthy churches. I grew up in the Bible Belt, the buckle of the Bible Belt in Dallas, Fort Worth, the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Everywhere needs more healthy churches. Let me just say to you young people, like I said last week, no one ever told me this as a young person. God may be calling you to be one of the ones that goes out. Maybe it's five miles away. Maybe it's 500 miles away. Maybe it's 5,000 miles away. God may be calling you, asking you, pressing on your heart to be the one of the ones that goes and starts one of these new churches that needs to be the case. We want people to know who Jesus is and to belong to a healthy church. And yet, today will be the last Sunday for 10 Southern Baptist churches in the U.S. And 50 total are having their last Sunday meeting today, according to the North American Mission Board. Seminaries and missions organizations aren't going to cut it. They're trying. But you and I need to see this as our responsibility. If we're going to reach the nations which are here, we are the ends of the earth, okay? If we're going to do what God has given us to make disciples of all nations, that may be you. All of those new churches need pastors, elders, 
All of them will need deacons and ministers, and those pastors will need wives. They'll need people and just regular church members to go out and call people to repentance and faith in Jesus and to create those new churches. We need more. And so as I preach on leadership, as we look especially at the Apostle Paul, I want to inspire you. I want you to ask that question of yourselves. And parents, I'm sorry, I know this isn't exactly a safe plan for your children. That maybe they are one of the ones to go to Zimbabwe or the Sudan or Indonesia and begin a new church. But we need that. And we need it here in Coeur d'Alene, in Post Falls, in Hayden, in Rathdrum, in Sandpoint, in Spokane. Hundreds of thousands of people within a 10-mile radius of where you sit. You could add 10 megachurches that are all super healthy and we wouldn't be scratching the surface. So, with that in mind, we're looking at three examples. Last week we looked at the example of John the Baptist and I hope that was encouraging to you. And I guess... You know, I don't see any of the men in our church wearing camel's hair and a large leather belt and having evidence of eating honey. So many of you maybe have not taken that as your example of leadership. Um, But hopefully you saw in the example of John enough to kind of form some of the some of the outworkings of what biblical leadership is, what it means to care for the people of God. And I hope as we look at the example of Paul, the same thing happens. He's different than John. And what we will be doing today is a little bit different. What you have in front of you is a handout. I've modified the one that you had last week, and I tried to make it more organized. And we'll go through each of these marks, these different nine different qualities that I would say are a summary of what Paul says in the passage in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And so we'll go through them, and I'll mention a few passages that are examples of this being the case in Paul's life. Now, obviously, Paul wrote 1 Timothy and Titus. So he's the one who's explaining to the church of God just exactly what they should look for in their leaders as they appoint them. Now, what you have also on your handout is just several of my favorite passages about Paul. And I meant to say this last week, but I, but I want to explain myself a little bit. Why Paul, why John the Baptist, and why Jesus? Hopefully it makes sense to you why Jesus, but I'll explain more of that next week. Uh, but why Paul, and why John, and why Jesus? I think these three men in the New Testament represent people that we see their beginning, even their birth, their beginning into ministry, their suffering for the sake of Christ, their ministry and work for the Lord, and then their end and their glory. So we may be able to see many different men in the Bible, and we may know from church history how their lives ended or what happened, but with John and with Paul and with Jesus, we probably have the most. And especially with Paul, we have the most autobiographical information in the New Testament of any individual. And so let's go through them. The first quality to aspire, aspiring to the office, desiring the noble task, caring for God's church, 
a lover of good and gaining a good standing. And what I write here, the theological summary is to have a zeal and a passion to devote oneself fully to the good of the people of God for eternal reward. And that phrase, for eternal reward, is important. It's not just devoting yourself to be zealous for the good of the people of God just for its own sake. But you need to understand that you're gaining something in the hereafter, that your treasure is in heaven. So there's several places you can see this. Uh, I mentioned two, uh, Philippians 2, 14 through 18, especially verses 17 and 18. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. He says, even if I'm going to be killed for the sake of the kingdom, even if my life is going to be poured out for the sake of the gospel, I'm glad and you should be glad. Because this is for Christ. This is for His church. This is for His kingdom. So rejoice. And then he says in 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul has a desire, a zeal for the good of the people of God. And he's willing to give his life for it. And it's not a drudgery. It's not a concession. It's not making his life worthless to pour it out for the sake of the kingdom. He has zeal for the good of the people of God. And you can see also on your handout that this is not just something for religious leaders. This is for you as well. Titus 2.15, 1 Corinthians 4.12. You can look at those on your own time. Was Paul above reproach? The next one, just a theological summary, uh, living an exemplary life, a life worthy to be an example, with no glaring flaws, worthy of the gospel. And this is what he says to the Thessalonian church in Thessalonians, uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 through 7, especially verse, uh, beginning in the middle of verse 5, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you. For your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So he's saying that he and his team lived such an exemplary life, a, a, a holy life, that the church, in imitating Paul and his team, was the same thing as them imitating Jesus. He lived such a life before his people that to act like Paul, to live like Paul, is the same thing as living like Jesus. That's something we're all called to, and I don't want that to be an overbearing pressure, but the example you're supposed to lead is where your children or your friends or your peers, if they were to follow your example, they would be able to say in the same breath, I'm following Jesus' example. Husband of one wife, we talked about this last week. The three men we've selected to analyze, to see this, 
were neither married nor had they any children. So what is the theological summary of what Paul is getting at here? Honoring the glory and sanctity of marriage, even with your life, at the cost of your life, like John did. And if you are married, to be a one-woman man. And if unmarried, to be consecrated to the Lord alone and pure. You can see in 1 Corinthians, the entirety of 1 Corinthians 7. This is why you hardly ever hear a sermon series through 1 Corinthians. To teach like Paul did on marriage is very unpopular. And he risks his reputation for the sanctity and purity of marriage. And you can also see in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, especially verse 27, he says, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be qualified. So there's more implied there than just his purity when it comes to relationships but especially when it comes to relationships and purity and chastity for him, that's what he's meaning there. He disciplines his body and keeps it under control. That's what a leader does. Having his house in order. Obviously, Paul didn't really have a house that he owned himself. Just like John and Jesus. So what does this mean? But it means to manage and use all your possessions, whatever they are, for the sake of the kingdom and to lead those under your care into the kingdom and to the king. You can see many, many examples of this with Paul. In Acts 18, verses 1 through 4, he makes tents with Priscilla and Aquila to pay for his own needs so that he's able to minister, not asking these new baby Christians to pay him. And in 2 Corinthians 11, 7 through 11, he says, reflecting on this, I didn't burden anyone. He's got his household in order such that he's able to even provide for the needs of those who are working with him. He's driven. He's got things that he's, he's not just afloat out there bouncing from one place to another. He's organized and he's got it together for the sake of the kingdom. That's the underlying. And may, maybe someone of the world would not be able to look at the life of Paul and say, oh, he's organized. He's got it. And he's knocking it out of the park. No, because he's in prison. He's running for his life in many situations. But when he's there and when he's ministering, he's seeing to his own needs. He's seeing to the needs of his team. And he's making sure the gospel is clearly explained to those who need to hear. Self-controlled and dignified. Theological summary, have mastery of yourself and your passions and manifest the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You can see this in, again, many, many places, but uh, I wanted to highlight 2 Corinthians 4, especially verses 8 through 10. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Why would I choose that passage to show self-controlled and dignified? Paul was under immense pressure and scrutiny and schemes and plots all the time. And he, he comes clean with his, his leaders regarding, uh, his, his hearers regarding it. it we are afflicted. We're pressed on every side. There's a lot of anxiety. 
There's a lot of fear even. But we're not driven to despair. He trusts in the Lord. The faith that he has in Jesus is so strong, so resolute, that even with all of those pressures, he is self-controlled to maintain trust in the Lord, even as people are hunting him. That's a summons, brothers and sisters. We are so fickle. When I send a, a message, or like last night, not, not a member of this church, I, I sent a message to someone trying to exhort them to holiness in a particular area. No one that you probably know, so don't worry. Um, and there's anxiety. How are they going to respond? Are they going to take it well? Or are they going to completely write me off? Paul says we, we are persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. And we do carry in the body the death of Jesus. So, so there is kind of a weakness there. People can sense the stench of death, as it were, around us when they see us, but also so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our bodies, that as we trust in Him, as we have faith in Him, while it's hard, and while we're wrestling in our hearts, we have that faith as our self-controlled, dignified foundation. Also in 1 Thessalonians 2, 6 through 8, he says, Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from, those, uh, for, from, from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but also our own selves because you have become very dear to us. He's gentle like a nursing mother. And then those of you who know your New Testament really well may be thinking, well, I seem to remember reading Galatians and sometimes he's not very gentle. Right? And what you have to understand that a biblical leader knows when to be gentle like a nursing mother, but knows when to not be gentle like a nursing mother, but to reprove and rebuke. If you're all one all the time, you can't be an effective leader, whether that's being gentle and merciful and caring like a nursing mother all the time or strong, firm rebuke all the time. If you don't know when and where, to be one or the other, you can't effectively minister. Not greedy, but generous. And the reference I have here is Acts chapter 20, verses 33 to 35. We will actually get to that a little bit later as we kind of look at more of Acts chapter 20. A humble servant. Was Paul a humble servant? He says to the Corinthians in uh, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, which he definitely could have done. If you have any familiarity with the Apostle Paul, you know how brilliant he is. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but a demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul was humble, and he was humble precisely because to be a minister of the gospel means that you cannot let your strength be the foundation of what you're doing. It can't be your skills 
your resume, your vocabulary. It must be a demonstration of the Spirit and power. I would say, just for clarity's sake, that's because it's through the Word of God. And we'll get to that. Excuse me. Also, was Paul proven? Did Paul have a reputation of faithfulness? What you see in Acts chapter 25, verses 1 through 22, is that even though the Jews had come to accuse Paul to Festus, they couldn't make any accusations stick. Okay, so so the Jews have found a way where the Romans have captured Paul and they're bringing all this delegation down from Jerusalem with false witnesses and people to say anything they could against Paul. But it's just Paul. There's no one else standing for his defense. And when they try to make any accusation stick before Festus, nothing sticks. Except that he preached that Jesus was in fact alive. That's the only thing they could make stick. So he had such a reputation that the entire Sanhedrin couldn't make any false accusation against him. And he also says to the Philippians in Philippians 3, 17 through 21, especially verse 17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. His example is so above reproach and so proven that he is able to say, follow those who are following our example. Was Paul a man of truth? It's almost silly to ask the question. But I want you to go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 20. This is where we'll spend the rest of our time. Let me just say before we get into Acts chapter 20, uh, one, we'll finish on time, so don't freak out. Uh, Two, I love the Apostle Paul. I really do. I really think that as you walk with Christ, I want want you to consider this. Paul is the preeminent apostle to the Gentiles. He has a unique ministry when it comes to the gospel towards Gentiles. You and I, unless I don't know your heritage, we're Gentiles. Gentiles. And so as you come to know Christ and as you become a Christian and and figure out what it is that God has done for you, you're reading Paul's letters and you're reading about his life and you're reading how he speaks about his life. And so as you come to know Christ, it's almost inevitable that you will also come to know Paul. And so as I've grown in the faith, I've just come to love this man. And this passage, uh, Acts chapter 20 really uh, verses 18 through the end of the chapter is probably the best summary we have of Paul's example and his life. So I want to go through as much as we can, line by line, and just see what type of man he was. And, And keep in mind, this is to show us what it means to be a faithful leader in the household of God. And this is also me calling to you, even you young people, that you would aspire to be a minister, a servant towards each other. And to encourage us that God has given his church such people. So he says, this is picking it up in verse 18. In Acts chapter 20. And when they came to him, they, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you 
the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. He had a proven track record. And what I want to emphasize here is that his priority in communicating to them the legitimacy of his ministry is his character. You yourselves know how I lived among you. This is the underscore of his legitimacy. I'm, I'm legit as an apostle because I have character. As, you, as we read through this chapter, and I'll make comments along the way, what you'll notice, and this is how, one of the ways you should read the Bible, obviously we should be looking at what is there, but we should take note of what is not there. What's not in this text? Numbers of converts, programs, milestones of success. What is here? The word, character, proclamation, admonishing, exhorting, teaching, caring for, loving. That's the marks of success in the household of God. You know you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Serve, verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with the trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. What's the first proof that Paul puts forward as a validation of his godly example that he served? That he served the Ephesians? Because that's who he's speaking to. He's speaking to the Ephesian elders on his way to Jerusalem. Is it proof of his godly example that he served them primarily? Well, certainly that's the case. But he says, I served the Lord, serving the Lord with humility. Serving the Lord with all humility. That's what stewardship looks like. That's what caring for God's household looks like. That we are but unworthy servants. We minister and we serve and we care with humility towards the people of God. And what did this humble servanthood look like? He tells us tears and trials. Did it look like numbers? Did it look like knocking it out of the park from the world's perspective? Did it look like getting recognized? Did it look like lots of social media followers? Did it look like book deals? Did it look like speaking at engagements and getting invited to speak before kings? It was tears and trials and opposition. If the Apostle Paul, I want you to think of this, if the Apostle Paul were doing ministry in the world right now, somewhere in our world today, would we even know who he was? Because this is a guy with trials and tears and opposition. He's not famous. He's infamous. Perhaps we might even be found to be in opposition to him. And what are these plots? These plots of the Jews. What, the way I would summarize it is life-threatening defamation. There were people out to kill Paul and to discredit him 
and to make his name a mockery. Stonings and beatings and imprisonments. And in Ephesus, there were riots and governing officials got involved and he had to escape the city eventually and leave Ephesus. The Jews essentially are capitalizing on the jealousy of the silversmiths who made idols for Artemis, their goddess. And the Jews say, oh, we can capitalize on this and stirred the whole city up so that they would hate Paul and drive him out. Leadership in the household of God. And it would be unkind of me to tell you anything different. Leadership in the household of God is the path of much resistance, trials and tears. And why I'm not afraid to tell you that in a sermon where I'm trying to get you to aspire, even you young children in this room, to one day aspire to be a leader in the household of God is that I am confident that the Holy Spirit works change through truth. That if I tell you a lie about what it means to be a leader and a servant and a minister within the household of God, and I, tell, I give you a rose-colored picture of that, the Holy Spirit won't work change in your heart. But if I give you the truth, if I tell you what it really means, then the Spirit enjoins that and gets in your heart and makes you want it for some reason. The example of Paul for me as a young child Understanding that he went to his death saying, I fought the good fight and losing his life for the gospel is part of what God used to inspire me to want to serve in the household of God. And that doesn't make sense. You mean this could end really badly? Yeah, well, sign me up. That's the spirit that does that. How I did, verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. So this is the second line of proof. He, he said, here's proof that I served the Lord humbly. I served you with tears and trials and opposition. And here's the second line. I did not shrink or pull back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. So the second line of proof is this. He's teaching them. It's the ministry of the word. He's a skilled swordsman with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. In a bit, we will see he calls it, this is the whole counsel of God. All that God has said for your good, church, that is what a minister, a servant of God should be bringing to all the people. But more than that, we see his eagerness. This is probably the most important thing you see here. It's not that he's just going around telling people doctrine or just the truth of the gospel. He has eagerness. He didn't shrink back. Why would he say part of the evidence of my Val, or the validation of the legitimacy of my ministry, the proof that I'm a, the real deal is that I didn't hold back because there's a real temptation to hold back, even for Paul. This is why he asks people in different places to pray that he would be given boldness to speak as he ought to speak. A true pastor, a true shepherd of the flock is one who is competent in the word of righteousness and takes it and presses it into the lives of his people. And this may be daunting, especially because of how I've structured this. I want everyone in this room to consider how you might be doing this same thing. I don't want it to be too daunting 
But it is at this point, being skilled in the word of God, that many pull back and say, that's not for me. Because I don't know the Bible, I'm not competent in it. And the, over, the, over the years that I've been involved in ministry, this is the point at which many people draw back. Say, it's not for me. So how can I encourage you? When, I want you to look at Paul. I did not shrink back. Even Paul, who authored much of the New Testament, wrestled with boldness. He needed the ability and the grace to say what needed to be said. He felt that same tension. And this is something for all of us. I, I, at the risk of losing your place, keep your, keep your finger in Acts 20. I want you to turn to Colossians 3.16. You may be thinking, well, pastor, this sounds great for those who want to go to seminary or want to be a preacher one day or a missionary. I want you to see this. And if you, if you are the type that marks and underlines and circles things in your Bible, this would be one of them. Colossians 3:16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You, Christian, are called to take the truth of God's word, the whole counsel of God, and bring it to bear on your brothers' and sisters' lives. You're to admonish and exhort one another to take the truth and, and make it fit into their lives. You're to know it, of course, but whatever you know about the word is enough to take it at some point and to encourage, to spur another believer on to love and good works. You know enough. Even if you don't know very much, you know enough. You don't need to know a great number of things to change the world. You just need to know a few number of great things. Now, it will be different. It will look different. There are people who are gifted and given to preach and teach in different ways and capacities, but we're all supposed to take the Word of God and prayerfully speak it to each other. So know the Word so you can. And he says, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. We talked about it this morning in our Sunday school hour for our new Members class conversion involves repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ. And I want you to know and hear the gospel. This is the truth that most changes people's lives. So if you can just get the gospel in your mind and it resonates in your heart and it is as glorious as it really is to you, then you can be an effective minister to one another, even if you never have an official title. The gospel is that God has moved in pity and kindness towards us and sent his son to be the wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
And through faith, through trusting in him, through reaching out and saying, this is the one who I claim as mine, that you then receive the righteousness of Christ and the forgiveness of your sins. That changes everything because then that means that God's love for you is not based on your performance. That means that your life and your happiness is not dependent on getting stuff here. But the promise of what God will do for those who are in Christ, it changes everything. And if you have not believed in the gospel, if you have not been one of the ones to reach out in faith and say, Christ is mine, I claim him as mine. Let today be the day of salvation, friends. We need to be telling people that they must repent and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. That's the only way they're going to be saved. Verse 22. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Holy Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. This is an example of having your passions under control. If we go back to our list of nine qualities for a leader, Paul knows the Holy Spirit has testified to him through prophets and through a deep sense of dread in his own heart that imprisonments and afflictions await him. But at the same time, he is being constrained or pushed by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. That's crazy. And I would say that's Christ-like. To know that God is the one who is pushing him to Jerusalem and knowing at the same time the Spirit is telling me it's going to go badly. And there will be imprisonments and afflictions awaiting me and his delight is still in the Lord. That he loves the Lord and he treasures Jesus Christ as it is the Spirit himself bringing him along to affliction and imprisonments and eventually death. That's trust in the Lord. That's having your passions under control that you would not at that moment rail against God. Why have you brought me to this place? Why have you brought me through the valley of the shadow of death, Lord? Is I will be with you good enough for you? He promises that if you follow Jesus, that afflictions await you. In this world, you will have troubles, but I give you my peace. Is I will be with you enough for you? Not, I'll give you your best life. I'll resolve all your relationships. I'll give you purpose and emotional stability. I'll give you health and healing and inner peace. No, I'll be with you. I'll give you myself. I love Paul. Verse 24 is one of the most important for me when it comes to understanding who he is and what makes him tick and what I should think. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. What is he saying? Is he suicidal? Is he fatalistic? Is he even being depressed in this verse? No. 
He's saying that all the promises of the world, all the pride of life, all the lust of the eyes, and all the pursuit of processions have no appeal to him. They become worthless to him. What do you want out of life, Paul? What is it you want? What's your, what's your life about? You want a good retirement? You want a good family, a nice house, recognition, legacy? No. But rather, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Let me make this clear. This is not a life motto just for the professional Christians, as if there could be such a category. We're all commanded by Christ himself. We've received our marching orders. Make disciples. But I don't count my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish this course and make disciples. Oh, that that would be the resonance of your heart brothers and sisters, regardless of how that looks, whether or not you ever have a title or ever receive a penny from it, that your heartbeat would be to make disciples. I don't count my life as precious to myself. I want to see people come to know the Lord and come into the kingdom. And leaders, those who God has prepared and set aside to lead his people, are those where this is especially evident. Verse 25, and now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will ever see my face again. This is very personal and sad. These are the elders that he spent years with and helping them be better at ministering and caring for the sheep. Just as an aside, he says the kingdom. So he's talked about he's going to talk about proclaiming the whole counsel of God. He talks about proclaiming the word. He said he's preached repentance and faith. And he says in another way, it's proclaiming the kingdom. The gospel is in kingdom terms is that Jesus is king and he's always been king. And because of his death, burial and resurrection, he invites the rebels, his enemies to come and join him in his kingdom and his peace. And he will one day come, return, and judge the world in righteousness, the living and the dead. And those who have not joined him in his kingdom through faith will be forever separated from him, receiving their just reward and punishment. So we proclaim the kingdom. Every Christian, I'm going to say this to every single Christian in this room. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This isn't just for leaders or pastors or apostles or Paul. Seek the kingdom first. And it's put in contrast to the things that the Gentiles seek. The things that we generally make our lives all about. What will we eat? What will we drink? What shall we wear? Where will we live? What will we do? Seek the kingdom and his righteousness. He says, therefore... Verse 26, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of you all. And this seems kind of an odd thing to say. Like right after he says, I'm sure that none of you are going to see me alive again. It seems an odd thing to say I'm innocent of the blood of all of you right in that moment, right? 
But I think this is an allusion to what God says through Ezekiel. Ezekiel says to, uh, uh, God says to Ezekiel the prophet that if I tell you, you're the prophet, right? You're receiving words from God and I'm telling you to go tell the sinner to repent. And if you don't go and tell the sinner to repent, he will suffer the condemnation for his own sins, but I'm also going to hold you accountable. But if you go tell the sinner to repent and he doesn't listen, then his sin is on his head. Paul is saying essentially that I told you what God told me to say. You've re- I've, I've explained the gospel. I've told you how you might be reconciled to God. So I'm innocent of the blood of all of you. And this is how he defines it. Verse 27, for or because I did not shrink. There's that idea again. I didn't pull back from. I didn't let the fear and anxiety derail me. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And again, this sounds daunting. Especially since part of the reason I'm doing this is to try and inspire others to want to be leaders in the household of God because we need more healthy churches we need a ton of them so on the one hand it ought to be daunting on the other hand the whole counsel of God here is essentially saying the same thing as anything that is profitable does that mean he's literally saying I spoke to you and taught over every single word in the book that we call the Bible probably not Because one, they didn't have the whole New Testament yet. And two, that's not what it means. He's saying anything that is profitable, meaning when he sees a brother or sister straying off the rails just a little bit or looking like they might be one of the one sheep to run and go off after sin. Or if he sees someone needing encouragement, needing to hear the truth of God's promises, that he goes and he says what needs to be said in that moment. The whole counsel of God is the truth, that part that you particularly need to hear. And one guy can't do that. This is the responsibility you have to each other. When you see one of your brothers and sisters, and even if you don't have absolute knowledge of what's going on in their heart, you can say, hey, Here is the truth of God when it comes to what you're dealing with. Here's the truth of God when it comes to what you're feeling. Here's the truth of God when it comes to what you're saying. So you should know the truth yourself, but then tell other people the truth they need to hear. Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Obviously, this idea is amped up to 11 for leaders. But it's not totally different at all from what we're supposed to be doing for each other. We're supposed to keep close watch on each other. Just as he commands these elders to keep close watch over themselves and the flock. Keep close watch over each other. That sounds a lot like the verse we spent so many weeks over. Take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That sounds a lot like this. It's because it is. It's the same thing. And I just, as an aside, I want you to see this Trinitarian doctrine here. Anytime I get an opportunity to do this, I want you to see it. 
in which the Holy Spirit, so there's the Holy Spirit, has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit operating there, all being called God. Verse 29. I know that after my departure, this is, this is important. You really need to pay attention to this. Verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. This is certainly chilling. Fierce wolves will come. And he even says, from among your own number, from the elder board in Ephesus, people will come up, rise up, teaching twisted things and drawing people away. And here's the bad thing about fierce wolves. Obviously that they devour the flock, but the problem here implied is that they don't appear as fierce wolves because they're drawing away the disciples after them. These are people who love Jesus and are maybe on their way into the kingdom. And because these wolves are so appealing and say the right thing and tickle your ears, you're drawn away to listen to them. Fierce Wolves, twisted things, and it's not always obvious. And you might say to yourself, well, that's really scary and chilling, and I don't know if I can fight a wolf. I'm just a sheep, and to that I would just say, we're all sheep here. Right? We're all sheep here. There are sheep who have been asked to be under shepherds, but Jesus is the only real shepherd, and we're all sheep. So we're all supposed to, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, strive to excel in building up the church. That doesn't have the idea of putting walls and buildings and property and lands and programs and stuff. That's, that's building us up into Christ and protecting each other from the fierce wolves. And he says that they would come from their own number, from, from the elders, from the leaders themselves, that fierce wolves would come up from within. So what's the solution? He says in verse 31, therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. This is the evidence of a true leader. Unceasing admonition in the word of God with passion and care. Consistently and persistently tearful admonition according to the word of God. This is not a program. This is not a church growth model. This isn't a new ministry strategy, as helpful as those things might be. This is not clever bells and whistles. This is prayerful, prayerful, passionate, zealous, careful admonition in the Word of God. This is the flavor of leadership we need as the people of God. And this is the flavor of relationships you need to each other. Verse 32, and now I commend you, or another way to say that is commit you to. Now I commend you, commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those, all those who are sanctified. It's 
continuation of what he's doing, and he's saying, I'm, I'm about to leave, and so I'm not going to be able to influence what goes on here anymore, and so I'm committing you to God and to his word. Whether you, pres- you are present with someone or away from someone, whether you're praying or teaching, what you want to do is to commit them to God and to the gospel. You might say, but there are already Christians. But that's the point. What keeps us in Christ is still the gospel by which you are being saved. He keeps us in himself by the gospel still. Verse 33, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, but you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. This is the last line of evidence that he gives as validation for his ministry. He's not greedy. Right? That's one of the nine that we've addressed. Basically, Paul's saying, I'm not here for the money. And I prove that. He wants to make it clear to everyone that he's serving cheerfully for his heavenly reward. It's not, it's not sad and dreary and upsetting to Paul that he has to minister to his own needs and the needs of the people with him. They were new baby Christians in a fledgling church in a hostile environment. So he's saying, I'm going to find a way to make it work and minister to you, and I'm not going to complain about it. And I would say that each of you should think of yourself the same way. And the, way we ha- the reason we have paid ministers now, which is a biblical category, is to equip you for the work of ministry. We need to rewrite our categories to be more biblical. Every Christian should strive to be able to honestly say, I'm a volunteer minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he gave the prophets, the apostles, the teachers, the evangelists to equip the saints for the work of ministry. I, you should be able to come to a point where you can honestly look yourself in the mirror and say, I am a volunteer minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you feel inadequate to do that, that's daunting and terrifying. That, that, to a degree, that's good. But if you feel that way and I'm inadequate and I don't know what to do, you should just find me and tackle me and demand that I equip you. Because that's what I'm here for. To equip you for the work of ministry. So that you can say that. And everything I'm trying to do and lead us to is in some way aimed at that goal. Verse 25, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak. And remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Well, this all seems hard and heavy, Pastor. But realize that the glory of how he calls us to minister is so great. He says we're supposed to help the weak. And as I was speaking about the state of the church and how much needs to be done to plant enough churches, to start enough churches, to grow existing churches, to strengthen existing churches. There is a lot of weakness out there. Churches are fledgling and frail, and there are people who are hurting. There are people who are dying, spiritual death. People are self-deceived. False teaching is pervasive. 
There are fierce wolves everywhere, and you get called as a Christian to help the weak. You've been recruited to build the one thing that will last forever in seeking the kingdom of God. There's one thing that will still exist after God judges the earth by fire, and that is the kingdom of God, and you get to build it. You've been given the tools and the power and the authority in the gospel to build that kingdom of God. And it is more blessed to give than to receive. You receive great reward. The last place I'll have you turn, 1 Corinthians 3. I want you to sense the promise of the reward. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15. Again, another one that you should highlight or circle if, this, if you do this sort of thing. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, straw, hay... Each one's work will become manifest for the day. What day is he talking about? Judgment day. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive his reward. There, I need you to understand this. The motivation for serving Christ is not the motivation for living a good life that we find in other religions. Good for good's sake. You should want to be good because good is good and that's it. You should want to minister and serve and build the kingdom because you believe through faith that I will receive a reward. And it won't look like houses and a nice retirement and great health and tons of family and all this stuff. It's going to be reward in the kingdom of God, which Jesus himself will give me. That ought to be the heartbeat and motivation of why you do these things. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So what I'm doing, what I'm trying to do in preaching sermons about ministering and leadership is to put you on a path to have greater reward on that day. Verse 36, back in Acts 20. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again and they accompanied him to the ship. Jesus says to Peter, feed my sheep. Be like me. I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. Love the sheep. You can see the affection between the Ephesian elders and Paul in this instance. Such affection, such love, such fondness, such care and it's reciprocated they feel this love for one another for a leader for a minister for a just a regular christian your motivation must be love love for the lord and love for his sheep and when the great shepherd returns he will bring his sheep to him 
And all of us who have been asked to be under shepherds as sheep will receive the reward. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the call to be ministers, all of us, to do the work of ministry. We would care for, love, and seek the good of our brothers and sisters. Help us see the need, the great, almost daunting, fully daunting need that's out there, and help us know that we have the power and the authority and the tools to meet that need. Inspire us today. Do things that we cannot account for by your Spirit. I pray that if anyone has heard the gospel clearly for the first time today and needs to receive Christ through faith, that they would respond today. They would find me or one of the deacons or leaders or the person they came with and receive Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.